you pray with me? Lord God, we've come here today to worship your son, King Jesus. And as we open your living and active word, I pray that we will see him more clearly than ever. That we will see that he is the king who saves sinners. And that he is the king who reigns supreme over all things. I trust that as we see him, that we will come to deeper faith in him, deeper obedience in all of our lives. Teach us now, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Jesus is king and context is queen. Jesus is king and context is queen. I think I picked up that little phrase uh, from one of my favorite seminary professors, uh, Old Testament scholar, Dr. Doug Stewart. What did he mean by this? Jesus is king, context is queen. Well, I think as a biblical studies professor, he wanted us to understand that the whole of the Bible comes to its climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wanted us to remember that especially as we studied the Old Testament because so often Christians, they kind of throw out or forget the richness of the Old Testament. He wanted us to know that Paul was right when he said in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, God's Old Testament promises find their fulfillment in Jesus, who is the King. But I think he also wanted to remind us how to study the Bible. He wanted us to be reminded that we can't just pull passages out of their context and expect to really understand them appropriately. We don't want to be guilty of soundbite interpretation of Scripture, where we pull a phrase out of context and therefore misunderstand it entirely or fail to understand it completely. You know, like the way the news media just takes a snippet of a politician's speech and then proceeds to miss or misrepresent his point altogether. No, we want to understand God's word in all of its context. So when we're looking at a passage, we need to understand how it fits with its surrounding verses. And then how it sits in the book to which it belongs. And ultimately how it fits within the whole Bible. Jesus is king and context is queen as we study God's word. You're aware by now that today is Palm Sunday. And if we hope to properly understand Palm Sunday, we must understand the context of that momentous day. And I'm willing to admit that until this week, I don't think I really appreciated the immediate context, the things going on around Palm Sunday until I was studying from the Gospel of John. You can turn to John 12, 12. Eventually, we're going to look closely at John 12, 12 through 19. But even before we do, in an effort to help understand the context, the, the backdrop, the background, I'd like to tell you what's going on in the days and weeks leading up to what we now call Palm Sunday. 
Because I think if you understand the context, you'll have a deeper appreciation for what actually happened on that day. And then, my hope and prayer is that we'll be better able to apply its truth on this day. So according to John in in chapter 11, a relatively short period of time before what we now call Palm Sunday, Jesus had made a trip to a town called Bethany. Bethany was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and these three siblings were close friends of Jesus. Bethany, being a sort of suburb of Jerusalem, just a couple miles east of the temple, was a place where Jesus would stop when he came to preach and teach and worship in the temple. So he knew Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He lodged with them. He loved them. But the occasion of Jesus' visit to Bethany in John 11 is not a pleasant one. Long story short, you're probably aware, Lazarus has died. And to make matters worse, Jesus knew that Lazarus was on his deathbed and he delayed coming, even though Mary and Martha had requested him to be there. Mary and Martha were distraught and they were incredibly disappointed in Jesus. Each of them said to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But we know that Jesus' delay was strategic. His delay allowed him to go to the tomb and to be there and weep with those who weep, showing compassion in their time of loss. And more importantly, going to the tomb late allowed him to speak those powerful words, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus rose from the grave, though he'd been dead for four long days. A true miracle. Unbelievable miracle. Now you would think that in the wake of this miracle, there'd be universal acceptance and appreciation for King Jesus. But John tells us that while many Jews put their faith in him that day, some of them went to the Pharisees, presumably skeptical about what Jesus was doing or nervous about his identity. So they went to tattle to the religious leaders. In the wake of this miracle, you also have to understand that the Jewish Passover was coming. This was the most important feast of the year for the Jews. The feast where they would celebrate the fact that God had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt centuries before. And it would be reminding them that though under Roman rule, they still had a sense of identity as God's people. It was their Independence Day, their 4th of July, if you will. And during these times of Passover, Jerusalem, which had a permanent residency of maybe about 50,000 people would surge to hundreds of thousands of people as the pilgrims came to worship and offer sacrifices. So the crowds were there and they were growing. And the people were hoping that maybe Jesus would show up, do another miracle with these hundreds of thousands looking on. And even the chief priests and the Pharisees hoped that Jesus would show up, but for altogether different reasons. 
Well, finally, six days before Passover, Jesus began making his way back to Jerusalem. He stops in Bethany on the way because Mary, Martha, and Lazarus hosted a dinner party in his honor. The least that they could do to say thank you for bringing Lazarus back from the grave. Well, it didn't take long for word to get out that Jesus was in the vicinity of Jerusalem. And crowds were gathering, hoping to catch a glimpse of the miracle-working Jesus, or the once-dead, now-living Lazarus. But again, you need to be reminded that the, the motives of the people seeking to see Jesus were mixed. Some wanted to see him because they loved him. Some wanted to see him because they hated him. There was an arrest warrant out for Jesus And they didn't want to take him in and bring him to a fair trial. They were plotting to kill him. So this is the tension of the context of Palm Sunday. Can you feel the tension? That because of Jesus' miraculous work, which comes to a climax in raising Lazarus from the dead after two or three years of miraculous deeds and authoritative teaching, this miracle is the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Pharisees. And they're ready to kill him, even as the crowds are ready to welcome him. Well, come what may, the day after the dinner party in Bethany, Jesus made his way to Jerusalem. And here is where we pick up the story in John 12, 12. You can follow as I read. The next day, a great crowd that had come For the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So as I said earlier, and as this text reminds us, especially in verse 12, Jerusalem was teeming with hordes of people, people who had come for the Passover feast. Picture for yourselves the throngs of people headed to MSU on a fall day, making pilgrimage to Spartan Stadium. Or for those of us in the minority today, we can picture... The masses headed to the big house in Ann Arbor. Or even if you don't like football and you don't know what I'm talking about, you really do know what I mean because you've been stuck on 496 or 127 on a Saturday afternoon in the fall and you're wondering, what is this fuss all about? I just want to get to the Kroger in Frandor and I can't make it. But the crowds tell you, the traffic tells you something big is going on, right? Well, in the same sort of way, There are crowds of people in Jerusalem. Crowds of people. And the crowds provide this context for discussion of current events. You can kind of imagine what they might be talking about. So, what's happening in your neck of the woods? Or, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Or, I wonder what those Romans are up to now. But it seems that... uh, The hottest topic of the day, the headline news, the story trending on Twitter was hashtag Jesus the Miracle Worker. Everybody's talking about Jesus. And why wouldn't they be? Bethany is just two miles from Jerusalem. 
It'd be like something supernatural taking place at Waverly High School just up the road and us not talking about it. Of course they were talking about Jesus. He raised someone from the dead. And when they hear that he's on his way to Jerusalem, they begin to make plans. Big plans. Intentional plans. Plans with national significance. Monday and Tuesday nights of last week, Rachel and I stayed up to watch the NCAA men's and women's uh, national championship games, basketball games. And we even managed to stay up for the trophy presentations. And when you watch those trophy presentations, you, you see lots of confetti and you see lots of t-shirts to commemorate the victory. And it occurred to me that all of that celebration is pre-planned. Right? The confetti is somewhere waiting in the rafters to rain down upon the victors. And the t-shirts are pre-printed so the athletes can don them immediately after the final buzzer. And on Tuesday night, the nation watched as the Yukon Huskies were crowned both kings and queens of collegiate hoops. Much to all of our chagrin, whether you're a Spartan fan or a Wolverine, right? What I'm trying to get at is the crowds in Jerusalem were making these big, intentional, nationally significant plans. They were waiting for Jesus to arrive. And they were ready. Now, they didn't have confetti and t-shirts, but they had something significant. They had palm branches in their hands. Palm branches, the symbol of victory in ancient Judea. And they weren't shouting things, trivial things like we're number one. But they had chosen something particular to shout on that day. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had chosen Psalm 118 to shout as Jesus arrived. The crowds were experiencing history in the making with their big, intentionally, nationally significant plans. They weren't just welcoming Jesus as the miracle-working prophet. They were welcoming him as the messianic king. The one chosen by God to save his people, Israel. And so that's why they cried out, Hosanna, which means save us now. Save us from Rome. Save us from that puppet King Herod. Save us. Save us from those Religious leaders who are gobbling us up like wolves instead of taking care of us like shepherds. Save us from our predic predicaments. And then as they saw Jesus riding that fool of a donkey into town, they must have had a great sense of affirmation that they got it right. It was a clue for them. Isn't that what the prophet Zechariah said in chapter 9? See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. We're right. We got it right. The king is here. The victory is won. So this ticker tape parade doesn't just welcome home athletes who are bringing a championship to town. Now this ticker tape parade welcomes home the one who comes in the name of the Lord himself, bringing blessing and salvation for God's people.
But remember, even amidst this celebration, not everyone is filled with joy in Jerusalem. The tension remains. Take a look at verses 17 through 19. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So even as those crowds had preemptively gone out to meet him, on the other hand, the Pharisees were plotting to kill him, fearing that the masses would leave them and start following Jesus. And as you probably know, in a matter of days, this tension would come to a boil. And this tension would produce another crowd, probably a different crowd altogether than the one assembled on Palm Sunday. That crowd would be gathered on an early Friday morning. That crowd would not be shouting, Hosanna, save us now. That crowd would be crying, crucify him. So that's Palm Sunday in its context. But now I'd like you to fast forward, let's say, 50 days or so from Palm Sunday. I want you to picture the disciples of Jesus seated by a campfire. Maybe along the Sea of Galilee after a night of fishing. And they're recounting all of the events that they've experienced since they first met Jesus. They talk about how he graciously called them. They talk about his authoritative teaching. They talk about how he healed miraculously. And then they come to that spring day, that, that Sunday in the spring, when the palm branches and the dawn. And it's like they have this aha moment. And they realize what was really happening. The real magnitude of what happened on Palm Sunday. John captures it almost like an aside in verse 16. He says, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that, the, and that they had done these things to him. You're familiar probably with the phrase, hindsight is 20-20, right? It means basically that you have full or perfect understanding of something, but only after the fact. It seems that Palm Sunday was like that for the disciples. It wasn't until afterward that they really understood, that they really realized, to use John's word, what was going on that day. And John says it wasn't until after Jesus had been glorified that the disciples came to this understanding. In, in John's gospel, glorification is a way to refer to Jesus' whole, complete work. Uh, namely, his crucifixion on the cross, his burial in the tomb, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to the Father's right hand. So Jesus was made famous not just because he rode the colt into Jerusalem on that Sunday, 
And he wasn't made famous in the way that they expected to be made famous. Jesus was made famous. Jesus was glorified primarily because of what he did on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This glorification of the Messianic king didn't come by overthrowing Rome. But instead, he came and these things had been written about him long before. The deep irony is that while the crowds shouted these words... God himself had inspired these words centuries before, and he had his son Jesus in mind. He had his son Jesus in mind, and he was orchestrating the perfect time for the crowds to recognize his son as the true king. They just didn't realize that they needed to be rescued. They needed to be saved from more than just Rome. They needed to be rescued from more than the puppet king Herod, or the religious leaders. They needed to be rescued from their own sinful rebellion. Not just their temporal predicaments, but their eternal plight. So the things had been written about him far in advance. This was God's plan. And additionally, as they see through the lens of Jesus' glorification, the disciples realized the significance of what they had done on that day. They went out with palm branches and hands, proclaiming Jesus as victorious. But they might have expected him to come with a sword in his hand. Instead, Jesus' ultimate victory was not won with a sword that day, but he came into the city as the Prince of Peace, riding gently on a donkey, not a war horse, headed not to kill, but to be killed. For the sins of the world, even their own. As Pastor Don reminded us a few weeks ago in his series on Moses of the significance of Jesus' death on the cross. John chapter 3 tells us that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus the King was lifted up on a cross. Jesus the king was lifted up as a curse. And that is where the victory was won, on the cross of Calvary. As Galatians 3.13 puts it, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So looking back, Through the lens of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension, the disciples realized that the crowd's cries for salvation were probably partial at best. And he realized that the palm branch waving that they did that day envisioned a different type of victory than the one Jesus would secure at Calvary on Good Friday. Jesus didn't come just to redeem his people from Rome. He came to redeem his people from sin. Jesus didn't come to bring political victory for Israel alone. He came to bring peace to all nations. Remember Zechariah 9.10 that you heard from the scripture reading this morning. 
God says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He, the Messianic king, will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So with hindsight 2020, we realize today with the disciples that Jesus is the king who saves sinners. And Jesus is the king who brings peace to all nations. All through the shed blood on the cross and his glorious resurrection from the tomb. So what might this mean for us today? How can we apply this to our lives on this Palm Sunday? I'd like to offer two applications for you today. First, I would sincerely ask, have you ever come to the place in your life where you cried out to King Jesus, save me. Save me now. And when I'm talking about salvation, I'm talking about salvation not from your temporal predicaments, but from your eternal plight. Not from the inconveniences of your life in the here and now, but salvation from, from your sin. See, the crowds, they, they liked the idea of salvation from Rome, but I don't know if they understood that they needed salvation from their sins. You might be sitting here today and you might think, I like the idea of Jesus saving me from some really difficult things in my life. Jesus, save me from this struggling marriage, from this financial hardship or this difficult job. Save me from my overbearing parents. Some of you are saying, save me, Jesus, from this chronic illness. Save me from that persistent temptation I have with that one sin. And Jesus is able to bring real rescue to those sort of temporal predicaments. But first and foremost, he needs to save you from your eternal plight. We are sinners. We are in rebellion against the one true God. And Jesus has won victory. He's paid the penalty for our sin on the cross finally and forever. And he's rose victorious from the grave to prove it. Have you turned from your sin and trusted him? Have you repented and believed and said, Jesus, save me? In saving you, Jesus wants to make you into the holy person that he desires. He might rescue from some of those temporal predicaments, but he might bear you up through those temporal predicaments in order to make you more like him. Whatever the case, have you cried out, Hosanna, save? Have you said, save me now? I think Christianity, authentic Christianity, is characterized by that great word. Save us. Save us from our sin. Save us, Jesus, because we're too sinful to save ourselves. Second area of application I'd like you to consider today is this. Are you guilty of limiting the kingship of Jesus in your life? You're a professing Christian, but there are areas in your life that you've failed to submit to his rule and his reign. You're holding back. 
the crowds rightly expected Jesus to be victorious. And they recognized that if Jesus was victorious and they were with him, that they would be victorious too. Maybe they had an independent state in mind. But I still wonder, did they have this idea of Zechariah 9 in mind, that Jesus comes to bring peace to all nations? I think we're sometimes short-sighted and minimalistic in our thinking about Jesus' reign. We don't want to take the good news there, or to those people. Or we, want, we don't want Jesus to reign in that area of my life. To modify a famous quote attributed to the great missionary Samuel Zwamer, he was a missionary to the Muslims in the late 19th century, early 20th century, he said this, unless Jesus is king of all, he is not king at all. It's a provocative statement. But I think it's true. Unless Jesus is king of all, he's not king at all. And so on this Palm Sunday, I'd like to challenge us to consider what total submission to Jesus really looks like in your life. And to help you apply it, I've just chosen two common areas of our lives that I'd like to highlight. I mean, really, you have to apply it to every area of life, but here are two that we hold in common. Is Jesus king over our mission? And is Jesus king over our mouths? Okay? Let's think about that just for a few minutes. Glorifying God by making disciples is our mission as Christians. And we carry out this mission by taking the good news of Jesus to all people and urging them, calling them to respond in repentance and faith. And I'm so thankful for this church's 125 years of commitment to that mission. It's really astounding. It's wonderful to be a part of a congregation that has a commitment to global missions. That we support some 60 plus families who are taking the gospel of Jesus all around the world. It's also encouraging to, to think that maybe our heart for missions at home, our evangelistic activity at home is growing too. I say that because since last week's sermon... When I was praying that God would raise up at least 13 people to join me for an evangelistic course this summer, that I already have my 13 people and then some. I think you're taking this call to mission seriously, and I'm thankful. But I wonder, even with our stable and growing commitment to mission, if we have some sort of limits on taking the good news to those people or to that place. Have we remembered that the good news of Jesus is for all people everywhere? That the good news is not just for traditional music lovers, but for contemporary music lovers. It's not just for one political party, but it's for that other one too. It's not just for Americans, but for Russians. The gospel is not just for the middle class, but it's for the poor and for the rich. The gospel is not just for our friends, but the gospel is even for our enemies. So I'd like us to consider removing, I don't want you to consider removing, I want you to remove the limits that you have on Jesus' kingship over your mission to take the good news to all people everywhere. 
is Jesus really king over our mouths? And in this day and age, I think we have to include our fingers too, since we're so prolific in communicating via text and tweet and email and Facebook posts. Be interesting to see if James would write something different in our day and age. The tongue is really capable of doing damage. So are the fingers. Now, I love South and its commitment to good music. It's been a blessing to be here today and to praise Jesus with our mouths. I hope you were stirred up to real worship and your affections were stirred up today as you sang those great hymns of the faith. And I suspect that as we meet and gather in adult Bible communities and as we go out to our cars, walk through the concourse on these days of worship, that we use our mouths wisely and lovingly as we interact with one another, fellowship with one another, speak kindly and encourage one another. I love that about this church. I think it's warm and friendly, and you use your mouths well. But I wonder, do the words that we use on Tuesday, when our parent enforces a stupid rule, or our child breaks a good rule, do those words that we use in that interchange, do they bring glory to King Jesus? How about that spontaneous and especially angry tweet or Facebook post that you put out there for all the world to see about that guy who tailgated you all the way down I-96 from Detroit and it just made you picking mad? Is Jesus really king? Is he really glorified in unproductive social media posts like that? How about that passive-aggressive email that you sent to your brother? You didn't want to speak to him with grace and truth and love in person, so you just shot off sort of a half-cocked email to him. Is Jesus reigning in those sort of communications? Are you quick to listen and slow to speak with your spouse, even when you're in a fierce disagreement? I want to remove the limits. Remove the limits of Jesus' kingship over our mouths and start letting him reign over all of our communication. I'd like to conclude today where I began. Jesus is king and context is queen. And we've seen that all over the Bible we hear whispers of Jesus' kingship. In the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus hailed as King of Israel on Palm Sunday. With the disciples' hindsight 2020 vision, we've seen Jesus as the King who saves, written about centuries before in Psalm 118, inspired by God Himself in eternity past. And we've seen that Jesus is the Messiah who comes to bring peace to all nations, riding on a donkey, as prophesied in Zechariah 9. And friends, if there's any doubt about what the future holds in store, I ask you to look with me at this picture from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe 
every nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. With that picture in mind, let's pray. Lord God, we weren't privileged to be there on that first Palm Sunday. But we look forward with great anticipation to that picture of eternity future. When all of us who are in Christ will be there waving palm branches of victory for Jesus our King, the one who saves us from our sin, and the one who reigns supreme. May that be the case in our lives even today. In his name we pray. Amen.